there's that random one where the kind of cars were kind of made semi made out of plants. I can't quite remember what that one was Ooh. called. Is that Jason and the Wheelers or something? Yeah, Jason, Jason the Wheeled Warriors, was it? Something like that. And obviously the other kind of weird one was, uh, obviously like Dungeons and Dragons, Ulysses. I actually once, when I first got my own DVD player, my own place, I actually asked for the Ulysses box set as a Christmas present because I don't remember it having an ending. No. <laughs> like it's just one of those programs that just, you know, a bit like, what was the one that, I mean, this wasn't TV program, so we're, we're already on tangents. The guy that went back in time and like he, he go into somebody else's body every oh. Quantum Leap yeah. again. Quantum Leap is just one of those programs that you never, they never felt like there was a resolution. Like it oh, just... Quantum Leap's bonkers. But that thing is, I think it's one of those where I never saw the ending. So right. like, Ulysses and Quantum Leap, I think two things for me where like each week you get drawn in, mm -hmm. and I'm and I'm not sure I ever ever, ever achieved resolution yeah, yeah. On, on either of those programs. Try, try and find the final episode of Quantum Leap on on YouTube or something because it's insanely existential. Okay, it's all set in a bar where the bartender right. might or might not be gone it's it's incredibly yeah it's it's something else it's it if you compare it to sort of like the the reasonably straightforward story of every episode of quantum leap where it's just kind of you know helping yeah. people become a better person the the direction it takes for the last episode is is something else i i, I recommend trying to find that Okay, um, so like Dungeons and Dragons, they cancelled that before they ever actually did a final episode, so you never know if they got home. Oh, I didn't realise that. Does, does Ulysses have an ending? Did you? Did you? I don't know. I can't remember. I feel like I need to kind of go back and dig them out because I mean it was kind of quite hard going because it is is quite a, it is chunky. The one that I remember is as as never as being never known whether it had an end was Mysterious Cities of Gold. Oh yes, that yeah, I love that. Again, yeah, I'm not sure I ever saw a final episode. I think I might have also asked for that on DVD at one point, but I'm not sure they've ever released it on DVD. No. So it's one of those where you've got to find it online. Have you watched any of the new She-Ra? The new She-Ra? No, like for me that that would be... I, I think I've come across it when I've been scanning Netflix for my son, but to me, yeah, to, to, to remake He-Man or She-Ra or anything like that, that's just a bit of a travesty. Like that's... Like the new She-Ra's actually... The new She-Ra's actually really good. Yeah, it's, it's a lot less male gaze. It's got all the same characters, but it's a proper kind of re... I mean, it's it's super woke. It's fabulous. Mm -hmm. it's, but it's really... They've, they've done a really good job of it. And they've managed to keep a lot of the same... A lot of the same characters, but with a slightly... Mm -hmm. They've made they it... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and less... It's the... The friendships between the characters feel more important. And it's not necessarily all about she hitting people with a sword. And the horse is brilliant. The horse is like genuinely hilarious. Um, okay, all right. You're, you're talking around. I think when I saw it come up, I think because I've got such nostalgia around the the visuals of the mm -hmm. 80s cartoons, because it was a very you know very distinct look. That to kind of see something that I, I I knew and grew up with, and was so kind of I guess in some ways emotionally attached to. Yeah. I think I had Shira. It, it, it didn't when it came past. It didn't look right, and I think that was enough to kind of. But I, I guess on, on reflection, that was kind of a fairly superficial. <laughs> it is easily done. I'm. I was very excited. My my eldest got has been getting into Transformers more recently, and we ended up watching the Bumblebee movie, which has, okay. has like seven minutes of old school Generation One Cybertron okay. battles with Soundwave and the cassettes and Optimus Brilliant. Prime and all of that. And I was just like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Okay, because I've been deciding whether or not to watch Bumblebee. 
So I remember like watching the first couple of Transformers. And I think there was one that was just really silly, and 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 I think part, like just way too much action, not enough story, and and also for anybody that's, I think it's the one where they had the Egyptian pyramids. Oh. They were kind of transitioning between the pyramids to somewhere else. It's like that just completely defies geography, and I think the the lack of realism was just really annoying me so i kind of i i love action movies anything that has pointless violence and explosions like i'm there so that one you're talking about is revenge of the fallen okay and i didn't i walked out of the cinema i've not walked out of the, i've only walked out of the cinema for like two films and that I, that was okay. that one the fact that they went through all that process of putting together devastator and having mm-hmm. like the the, the constructed console joined together to fight devastator and then devastator pyramid he didn't even fight any of the robots. It's like, seriously, Power Rangers manages that kind of escalation between, like, different sizes of robots and monsters on a weekly basis more effectively than that multi-million pound movie did. I was really so, so disappointed. Was it then following one after that had Mark Wahlberg on it? And another fact that why would a Transformer be sitting in his barn was slightly, there was slightly more story to it. I yeah, think yeah that's, that, one, that one is slightly better, I think. But Bumblebee's actually... I, I think it's the best of the live-action Transformers films. That is a... I appreciate that's a really low bar. Like a really, really low oh, bar. I, 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 I like low bar. Like, so, you know, for me, pointless version, so we're talking Vin Diesel, kind of Jason Stratham. Have you... I like Mechanic. I like Mechanic. I think Mechanic's mm-hmm. a good one. But yeah, violence, explosions, fighting, martial arts. You know, because to me, that's how I relax. Like, I, I, I'm not watching a movie to be educated. Like, I want 90 minutes, two hours of visual entertainment... And then I can switch off and go, I don't need to think about the movie ever again. Where do you sit on John Carpenter movies? John Carpenter? Oh, I mean, I, I, I loved A Big Trouble in Little China. That's mm-hmm. like one of my favourite, favourite movies. I'm not sure how I feel about the remake. Me too. I, I, I think it was, a again, a brilliant bit of kind of 80s, 90s cinema. I don't think I saw this thing until I was a lot older. Just, you know, I guess being a bit more kind of horror movie. Mm. And yeah, I mean, obviously, I think just the collaboration between John Carpenter and Kurt Russell mm. uh, is just a good, a good pairing. So you know, they kind of was it kind of escape, escape, escape from New York, York escape yeah. to LA. I mean, mm. they escape to LA. It's very, very silly. Bruce Campbell as the as the Surgeon General of Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah just the whole kind of plastic. And I think you know, particularly with the second, like with the LA one, the way that there's almost that subtle commentary on the the kind of I guess very superficial image orientated culture mm-hmm. of LA that it's an act of movie me but there's, there's there's a bit of kind of a subtext going on as well absolutely I, I re-watched they live not long since okay have you, seen, have you seen that one it's 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 great and it's kind of weirdly it's weirdly relevant again <laughs> Sad, okay. sadly relevant again it's it's in some respects it's John Carpenter attempting to do for pro wrestling what he did for kung fu movies with Big Trouble in Little China. It's like an interesting concept. And it involves Rowdy Roddy Piper playing a drifter who stumbles across a global conspiracy of aliens who have infiltrated the highest levels of our society. It's it's really... To call it a subtext would probably be overstating. It's kind of like the text. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's kind of become weirdly relevant again, I think, with, mm. with a lot of what's been going on um, in the world recently. It was It was quite interesting to see that. Okay, I'm getting some good movie recommendations. I think one of the things I remember seeing, oh, it's years ago as part of Brighton Festival, was like one of our, our kind of local comedians, and he emceed over the Highlander, 
which in some ways was hilarious, but at the same time also kind of took apart how ridiculous and how silly it was. So it, it had this kind of strange dual effect of both kind of ruining the movie, but also elevating and making it more entertaining at the same the same time. I, I can see that because I think it's, there, there's Highlander for me fits into one of those films where I'd rather not watch it again because I'd like to remember okay. it the way I remember it, not necessarily how it is. And so I can imagine re-watching it and kind of really wanting to like it, but also being kind of potentially... I, I, it's one of those films where I'm kind of concerned that if I was to rewatch it, then I would be, be hugely disappointed by, by the reality of it. Okay, yeah, maybe leave that. I mean, I think I've, I've rewatched it a, a number of times. And I think once you get past the ridiculousness of Sean Connery with a pearl earring, apparently being Spanish, yeah. and, and the, the big bad guy that... What, was it going to have the, the safety pins to kind of put his neck back together? Oh, yeah. And actually, on reflection, it's quite a bad makeup job. <laughs> the special effects. But I think it's one of those things you can just em- embrace it and then mm-hmm. you take it what it is. But I think one where I, I shouldn't have gone back was Thundercats. Okay. Because I think Thundercats in my in my head how it was, and then I rewatched like randomly. A friend gave me an old VHS of uh, Thundercats, and I was like, "Oh, cool, right?" Let's. And that was quite disappointing because actually that particular episode was quite racist, right? Um, okay. Which I was completely oblivious to at the at the time. Mm-hmm. So that that's one where I shouldn't have gone back. There's, I think there's quite a bit of that that we don't spot or we didn't spot at the time. And watching things through a kind of contemporary lens is quite. It's mm-hmm. makes a, a lot of a lot of kids' program was surprisingly violent. I which I don't think I really or I obviously processed as normal at the time. And then when I think about what I, the, the bar that I have for letting my kids watch stuff, mm-hmm. and then I'm kind of like, oh my Lord, I, I probably watched Terminator by the time I was his age. I was in a band many years ago called Stupid, Stupid, Stupid and Steve. We were, a, we were a punk band. And most of the members of the band lived in the House of Rock. And we would obviously spend a lot of time hanging around post gig in the House of Rock, uh, kind of dream casting. The movies that have subsequently happened, most of them, but the one that's not yeah. happened is Thundercats, and okay. we we were and for us like Vin Diesel was was basically Pantera. You know, we we I think we I, I think we struggled to cast all the rest of it. I'm, do you think you're a psychologist? You might know this. Is all this stuff that I remember stopping me learning like useful things? Well, as as I seem to be remembering similar stuff, I'd like to think not. <laughs> I, I think it gives us a um, unique lens, mm. and uh, you know, because I was I was born in seventy eight, and I've read that you know we're, we're you know if you're born in that that kind of like little bit between being uh, a, a millennial and I think whatever came before, mm-hmm. because you know, like I I, I I don't know your exact age, but you know, for me, I didn't actually use computers until my first year at university. I didn't actually have a phone until my my third year at university. Mm. So, you know, my childhood was, was analog mm-hmm. and my adulthood has been digital. And, that, and you know, my sense that that's going to give you quite a unique perspective on the world, mm-hmm. more so than the generation that came before or the generation that came after. So I'm telling myself that it's a benefit. It's... I, I, did, I saw a great tweet with some, of someone who I imagine was probably of a similar age to us saying, given that he can remember all of the words to Ice Ice Baby, having not heard it for 30 years, he wonders if it would be helpful for pop producers to make the make lyrics to pop songs slightly more educational in order to help us in later life, which I can I can see. Yeah, I I can I can totally see that. Should we get started?
Hello, you're listening to Do Yourself a Favour, the podcast about learning from experience and the things we do to make our lives easier. My name's Tim Sisney from Make Work Work Better, and each episode I'll be talking to my guests about their epiphanies, their inspirations, and the magic of their workflow. Excellent. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to Do Yourself a Favour. I am very excited to welcome Maria Gardner to Do Yourself a Favour. Maria. Hello, Tim. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So other, other than referencing the preamble of being a huge fan of 80s cartoons and 90s action movies, by, by day I am a business psychologist, which for, I guess, the initiator means very much as it says in the tin, I apply psychology in the workplace. My particular lens right now, and this is obviously why Tim and I connected, is, 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 is well-being. And I, I, I think, you know, why I'm particularly passionate about that is over the last 20 years I've had quite an exciting opportunity in that I started my career in in the field of stress and around building mental toughness. I then spent a number of years working in psychometrics and test publishers with a particular lens on selection and assessment. I then spent a good chunk of time working with leadership development and like kind of going, how how do people kind of achieve their potential? And then kind of over the last year, I've kind of gone, actually, all of these pieces are part of the same whole. And I think sometimes, and what I felt frustrated the last year is that when people talk about well-being, sometimes it feels about well-being for well-being's sake and not thinking about the wider ecosystem within which we talk about it. So so that's that's currently my, my, my kind of, my focus and my mission is going, how do we take a more systematic approach to improving well-being you know it's, it's you know I, I was interested 20 years ago and I kind of at times feel like I've had to wait 20 years for people to be ready to have the conversation that is needed to be had for a really really long time and for those people that know me well you know I kind of say about how do we put well-being at the heart of business rather than just on a mock and I think unfortunately there are too many well-being initiatives which are well-intentioned but not well thought through and I'm on a mission to try and change that. And, uh, and it's a mission we very much share. So it's, it was it was fantastic for us to be introduced and I'm really, really pleased to, to have you on the podcast. So we'll, we'll, we'll dive straight in. And the first question that I always ask everybody is, what's something that you wish you'd learned sooner? So this is actually a recent epiphany for me, which is quite ironic considering what I've just said. I was doing a lot of reading over the weekend about how the rates of presenteeism and leaveism are just going through the roof. So basically, you know, people not being able to switch off, that they're turning up to work when actually they should be resting and recuperating, that they're working when they really should be taking holiday and realising, oh, crikey, I'm actually quite guilty of that at the moment, which considering part of my my model is around the importance of refueling and not just resting, I, I think. Not that it's something that I wish I'd learnt sooner, but like I say, it's, it's one of those things where it's easy to sometimes know this stuff academically, but not then go, how does that apply to me? Mm-hmm. So like I said, that's, that's a very recent epiphany going, you know, I've been doing lots of resting, but I've not been doing enough refueling. And I think that's been quite challenging for people over the last 18 months because the things that we would normally do to refuel, which is kind of seeing family, seeing friends, going out, having a good time, restaurants, socialising. For me, that, that would be dancing. Like that, that has been taken away. So you know, I think we've had to do a lot of recalibrating or finding other ways of refueling. Mm. And, and yeah, there's a bit of a bit of uh, trial and error. So that's that, that's I'd say is, is a recent a recent in, insight or realization for myself is that I myself actually need to do a bit more in terms of building in refueling, not just resting. I think it's I don't think it's unusual for people who work very closely in an area to actually struggle with the walking walking like they talk it. You know, I think there's I think you you see that a lot with the and, and it really interests me especially in areas where there's a degree of self-awareness implicit in the work 
that mm. we we all have massive blind spots about ourselves. It's and which is and I think especially when you when you work when you work on your own or you you spend a great deal of time kind of solo, not having those kind of and then especially again over the over the last eighteen months or so when we've all been kind of iso- like physically isolated, mm. not having that that checkpoint that you have of, of you know, whether it be co-workers or people you share a space with and for, for people to actually kind of like call you out on that stuff mm. I think it does become harder to to recognize when you're like you know not following your own advice yeah I think also what I struggle with is you know my, my, my natural instinct is to put put everyone else first in there to put the client first I've got a four-year-old which you know, I absolutely adore, but they can be quite demanding. I'm currently trying to teach him to wait his turn as opposed to interrupting whenever he wants to say something. So, so yeah, you know, as, 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 a, as a psychologist, you know, my, you know, my drive is always to go, how can I help this other person? You mm-hmm. know, as a parent, my drive is to go, how can I provide for my son? Uh, and, and it is kind of going, and then it's, it's back to that classic, you've got to put your own gas, you know, you've got to put your own, oh, what's it, uh, oxygen mask on first before you then mm-hmm. put it on the other person. So, yes, I, ha- I have to work actively quite hard against that instinct of putting you know kind of just putting all of my energy into providing for other people and, and not for myself because ultimately then I, I you know I, I run out of the the fuel I need to continue doing that so so yes I do, I do find I, I kind of need a, a refresher on that every so often I might actually I might be going maybe I just need to write this down and stick it up my wall or, or kind of put it in my, my diary as the goals go right okay what are you doing to refuel today mm-hmm. and those kind of prompts can be super helpful actually to be able to mm-hmm. just and one of the things that it's a, a getting things done tool or concepts that David Allen calls the horizons of focus, where he, which are kind of about the, the levels of, I guess, perspective in your world. So you've got the stuff that's going mm-hmm. on now, but then also the stuff you want to achieve in a number of years and all of you know, your purpose and principles and values. And one of those levels is around areas of responsibility, focus, things that you, you know, all the, all the roles you play in your life. And I find that hugely helpful to review those roles on a semi-regular basis. Just to kind of go, mm. am I balanced? Is there something that's ostensibly mm. important to me that actually I'm paying no attention to at the minute? Or I'm, is there an area that I'm over-concentrating on for, for, for whatever reason? Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, you have to have some kind of prompt in order to kind of... Because if you don't get your head out of the weeds often enough, then, then you are going to miss those opportunities. Oh, I, I completely agree. And actually, one of the things I, I've been doing over the last, year, well, actually a couple of years, is trying to build, actively build in thinking time. Mm. You know, because I think it's so easy to get caught up in doing, whether it's doing for work, doing in terms of being a parent, doing in terms of, you know, having a home or a, or a partner. So no, I actively self self challenge whether it's just going for a walk or, or just kind of being in an environment where I just kind of remove all stimulation. So it's like, you know, phones away, TVs away, like it's just me and my thoughts. And, and I've realized it's when I have some of my best ideas. Mm. So, so, so yeah, I think, you know, that kind of, Building, building and thinking time is important. But I was actually um, talking about to to another well-being person just before doing this, and I was showing that I've, I've, I'm actually kind of quite old school. I have a diary, like I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think to, because for me there's something very kind of more tactile and involved in writing things down as opposed to typing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said that the, the journal I use actually encourages goal setting in about five or six different areas. So it gets you to think about what goals do you want to set each week in terms of, say, career and finance, in terms of personal development, in terms of health, in terms of like spiritual well-being, physical environment, and also family and friends. And mm-hmm. I find that's quite a good structure, again, talking about balance, to think about, yeah, think about, I guess, a, a kind of more holistic perspective going. And you might have days or weeks where you go all in on one thing, 
but then you need to kind of rebalance again. There was a book that I read earlier this year by, I think it's the sister of Mark Zuckerberg. And, you know, and she was saying she, she got frustrated. She went through a phase of going, going, how do you do it all? And she's like, I can't do it all on a particular day. And she's like, you know, if for example, she's got, you know, six main areas in her life, then she's realized that she can probably do three well mm-hmm. in any given day. And as long as the week overall looks balanced, that's that's how she manages her time so she'll roughly pick out you know what are the three things so it might be okay well today's gonna be a uh, a family exercise and uh health day mm-hmm. and then another day might be okay well, it's gonna be a work and a health day so she's saying that's how she manages it is kind of you can look at each day but then you look at the week overall to mm-hmm. go am i uh, achieving that balance okay the i think there's something about i like the word balance because balance doesn't in this situation, balance doesn't necessarily mean that everything's equal, does it? You know, it no. just means it's, and that balance could be different week to week, and it could be just like, if you've got the right balance for, for and, and some weeks, the right balance will be slightly tipped in favour of one thing or another thing. You know, if, you, if you're <laughs> on holiday, your balance should be tipped more towards mm. your family relaxation and, you know, yeah. what's, what's going on. And, and similarly, sometimes... In a working environment, the balance will have to tip in the other direction. It's yeah, it is about making sure that kind of from a, in a macro scale, it's it's more level as opposed to trying to do everything all the time. I think there's there's something quite there's something very true about that. I'm really interested, and this is the 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 second of, of probably what will be more tangents. But how do you think being a psychologist influences your parenting? Yeah, it, it definitely does. And I, th- I think as a psychologist, what the bit that drives me is, is kind of understanding what makes people tick. So, yeah, how do, how do I kind of explain it? So, yeah, I think because I understand more, and this is kind of interesting, is my, my, my partner's um, a biochemist that specialises in sports nutrition. Okay. So we, we've both got that kind of evidence, kind of research background, but we come at it from completely different angles. You know, so like, you know, the kind of classic change of how do you get your kids to eat vegetables? You know, like my partner's looking at in terms of going, well, which, you know, what macronutrients does he need? And I'm going, well, okay, well, how, from a psychology point of view, how do I make it interesting? Mm-hmm. But I think more on a day-to-day basis, I think it's given me insights in terms of understanding, you know, where he is developmentally on that. And and thinking, you know, there's, I guess there is kind of key moments. So for example, my son's going to be starting school in in two weeks. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's, so, you know, one thing I'm doing is going, I've actually, he's going to be wearing school uniform for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. So I've actually intentionally left that out in his bedroom so he can see it all the time. So that when he then has to start wearing it for school, he's already subconsciously built up that familiarization mm-hmm. with the school uniform as opposed to hopefully, I'll tell you in two weeks' time, <laughs> have, having the fight and the tears and the argument about wearing a tie and about mm-hmm. wearing a shirt sure. uh, for the first time ever. So I think in terms of how being a psychologist influences being a parent, I think some there's probably some aspects that I'm aware of when I consciously think about how to use my, my training, my insights. And then there's other bits where I'm probably doing it, but not aware I'm doing it right. because it just probably gives me a, a different lens or a different insight that I'm subconsciously using without even mm. uh, being aware of it. Do you, are there any areas where you think it, you maybe know too much where if you didn't know it, it would maybe easier. Okay. I think so. I mean, I, I, I think business psychologists are different to other types of psychologists, mm-hmm. and I apologise in advance if I insult everyone or, <laughs> or anyone in particular. But generally, what I find is that business psychologists are a little bit more grounded. We're a little mm-hmm. bit more kind of every every day. We're, 
you know, by the nature of applying psychology in the workplace, we, we are quite pragmatic, particularly, you know, if, you, if you're kind of, you know, kind of a consulting business psychologist. In comparison, I remember hearing a story about a cousin of mine who's a clinical psychologist and how she was out for dinner and she was psychoanalyzing the, the couple on the table next to her. And I'm thinking, just enjoy the dinner. Mm. Just enjoy the person that you're sitting opposite with. So for me, I think sometimes the kind of psychologist is, is a level of awareness that I can tap into but I don't have it turned on all the time, you know? So if I'm talking to someone, I just want to enjoy the conversation. Like I can turn on that extra level of awareness to analyze their body language, the position of their head, what their hands doing, what their feet are doing, the, the intonation, you know, I can think about the beliefs or values that go in behind what someone is saying. But I don't need to think about that all the time. Okay. Or at least like, for me, I don't want to. Like I'd rather mm -hmm. be pl present and in the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe at times, you know, my kind of psychology training is, is uh, a superpower that I can <laughs> kind of draw when the situation is needed, as opposed mm -hmm. to Clark Kent going around with his shirt pulled open, you mm -hmm. know, all the time. Okay, interesting. No, I only asked because uh, my wife's a psychotherapist and she was going through her training, particularly around development, child development, while she was pregnant with her second child. Mm -hmm. And there were certainly times where I think there was this sense for her that she was maybe knowing too much <laughs> and and maybe and, and not necessarily overthinking but maybe just sort of a hyper awareness of of mm -hmm. Im, of potential impact or, or these kind of things which you know she's obviously been able to uh rein in as, as time's gone and she's become more more assimilated the knowledge i guess but i think it was yeah. yeah it's it's something that i that i wonder occasionally around how much whether those whether some of the insights that you can gain from knowing about you know psychology or child development or some of these other kind of areas which the vast majority of parents don't have access to you know how much of it is a, yeah. how much of it is a double-edged sword yeah i think like i said the the, the type of psychology that i do because it mm -hmm. is like it's more pragmatic and it's less involved in say psychotherapy or clinical psychology where you do really get into think about the psyche of the individual mm -hmm. so i have an awareness of it but not a deep a deep understanding or deep insight so i can tap in a bit of it but like i said it's it's I think for that, it enables me to not have that burden of over overthinking mm -hmm. what's going on mm -hmm. with him at any one time. And I mean, ultimately, we, we tend to have kind of regular chats as to go, well, how do we think things are going? Like, mm -hmm. you know, if he's struggling to make friends at the playground, then we chat about, well, what could we do to support that? And why mm -hmm. might that be happening? And, you know, might might we might, you know, definitely with my psychologist hat on, it's like, well, I'll, you know, I've, I can probably identify an interaction that he'd had maybe in the week or a couple of weeks previously that may mm. well have then created the behavior that we're seeing now. So it's like, okay, well, if I understand that's where it came from, how do we then support him moving mm -hmm. forward? So I think if anything, I think with with the psychology knowledge that I have, I probably feel more empowered to be able to influence and support mm -hmm. his development as opposed to just seeing what happens. Okay, um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so let's move on. What's What's a book? that really changed the way you, you think about things? A book or a concept that changed the way that you think about things and sort of formed, I guess, the way you approach things now? So I was thinking about that this morning and I'd say definitely professionally and probably to a certain extent on a personal level is when I first came across the concept of mental toughness. Okay. And mental toughness, just to kind of explain to those listening that maybe haven't come across that concept before and also is quite often misunderstood, 
is if you have a high degree of mental toughness, then rather, you know, because I think resilience is about bouncing back. If you have a high level of mental toughness, you don't even notice things as being stressful, like your tolerance point for the point at which you start feeling out of control uh, and things are a bit more overwhelming, far, far higher than okay. somebody that would, would have a lower level of mental toughness. So it, it, it means that you're being tough or macho. It's, it's almost kind of a degree of sensitivity to the, the environment, the stimulus that you're experiencing. And at the time in which I came across this concept, I was studying my, my master's degree. I was up in Hull. I was working in a debt recovery call center, an inbound debt recovery call center, which was not a particularly pleasant environment. And I remember one week, they, they kind of put, they had a cohort of about 10 people and they put them through two weeks of product training. And, and then they're all ready to start on the Monday and, you know, they all turned up on the Monday and then they kind of realized actually what the job really entailed. Two people came back on the, nobody came back on the Wednesday and then one person reappeared on the Thursday and I was just, and, and kind of working in that environment and I, I, I had the very glamorous job. They wouldn't train me up because I knew as a student and I'd made it clear that I didn't see myself as having a career mm. as, as a debt recovery specialist. So my job was I had to get 40 calls an hour to tell people i'm really sorry we're too busy can i ask somebody to call you back later that was my job eight hours a day 40 calls an hour i'd take all of their contact details so they thought they were finally through to someone and then i go really sorry can we call you back so whilst i was doing this this very engaging exciting glamorous job looking at the people around me what i was fascinated was how some people kind of thrived in that environment and seemed to be completely immune to you know kind of quite at times kind of quite unpleasant conversation you know literally you have people shouting screaming threatening physical harm and it's like well what are the you know what is the difference between the people that kind of thrive or at least survive in that environment and the ones that drop like flies mm -hmm. so so that was the the context and i went along to this like you know kind of guest lecture on mental toughness and like ah is this it is this the thing and also i guess on you know maybe i guess that's a moment of self-awareness realize that I am something that actually has kind of quite high levels of self-awareness. Like I think my parents have put it down to me just being pathologically optimistic because <laughs> uh, I never seemed bothered by anything. But actually, it you know it was maybe something. And there's, there's a there's a physiological component as well. It is my tolerance point at which I would consider something stressful was so much higher. And even when I did consider something stressful, for me there is always a way around it. There is mm. it, it will never be that bad. It you know it will never last forever. There will always be something that I can do. And and what you know, I kind of realized is the way in which I would often potentially stressful was very different to people around me. Okay. So it had this double whammy of creating this moment of self-awareness about myself, but also the environment I was in. And then that led to then me doing my um, master's. I did my MSc research looking at mental toughness and stress and performance in call centers because, you know, it was, it was such a fascinating environment, which then led to my first consultancy job. So in terms of a book or a concept that changed my life, it really, really did. Because I say it, it, I guess there was a moment of self-awareness. It led to my research. It led to my first mm -hmm. job. And it's, it's also kind of led to where I am now. And I think why sometimes I have kind of quite a unique take on the well-being conversation because it feels like a lot of people are talking about well-being for well-being's sake or that a lot of people talk about resilience about bouncing back and it's going well rather than people need to bounce back why don't we give them the tools and resources so that, that they don't need to bounce and for me that feels so much more em em empowering uh, and impactful than going you're stressed you're you're you know worn you know you're worn down mm -hmm. you, you've hit your limit how how how, do, how you know how do we you know how do we make you resilient i'm going well let's let's make you tough let's make you mentally tough so you don't have to go through that emotional physiological roller coaster of needing to 
be resilient. I mean, we've talked about this in before, and I think there's the whole, one of the things that I I struggle with a little around the current existing standard for for well being in in a lot of organisations is that it is very reactive and it does kind of assume harm has happened, as opposed to thinking about preventative approaches that could be taken. So I think there's there's certainly a, a huge potential audience for anything that addresses the how do we stop people getting to the point they're broken i think it's unfortunately i would say that sticking a whole lot of people on resilience workshop mm-hmm. it's easy it's cheap it ticks a box mm-hmm. what a resilient as you say resilience work is about treating the symptoms rather than the cause and often the the cause of why those people potentially need to be resilient is is more systemic and it's about actually how the business runs and functions mm-hmm. and and is led and that is a much bigger more complicated bit of work mm-hmm. that organizations are often less willing to do absolutely so, and also so, it's, yeah, it, it relies on, on it relies on the organization actually admitting some kind of responsibility or culpability as well so yeah. a certain amount of organizational self-awareness mm-hmm. which which again i think is quite it's is, is rare yeah so over the you know when i was working directly in mental toughness that that was lovely i you know that for me was very rewarding since then as i've worked for other organizations a number of times i've been asked to go and deal you know deliver resilience training mm-hmm. and invariably they've been like two or three hours long you know which is not enough time to do anything meaningful uh, and i'd say by and large i've, I've hated every single one because it's, it's you know the the, the it's, it's been so superficial and when you kind of start to dig under why are these people needing resilience is going well the, the, the targets that are being given are completely unrealistic. Their workload is completely unrealistic. They've got no control over their workload. They, they're, they're very explicitly being given competing priorities. They're going, well, do I do what this manager tells me or do I do what this manager's mm-hmm. telling me? If I do what this one wants to do, then I piss this one off and I do that. And it's going, their lack of resilience is not the problem, but it ticks a box. And they can go, oh, yeah, but we gave them resilience training. Mm-hmm. So I don't have an issue with resilience. Just to be clear, I don't have a re- an issue with resilience training in itself because I mm-hmm. think it has a place. But it should not be a substitute for, you know, like I say, it's, it's, it's a badly sized, ineffective sticking plaster. Mm-hmm. When often, like I said, the, 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 you know, what needs working on is is usually much much more systemic. It's about the, the design of the 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 job. Is about the culture of the organisation. Yeah, uh, I mean, the I've I have I've had similar conversations around mental health first aid training, and and you know, I'm a mm-hmm. mental health first aider. I think it's it's an incredibly the, the training itself is massively massively mm-hmm. useful and I think that it's a very fantastic signposting initiative for for organizations. So again, I don't want to come across as critical of it as in and of itself. But when organizations only have mental health mm-hmm. first aiders, the and to to do my standard drawing comparisons between mental health and physical health in the workplace, we a, a warehouse would have you know, a warehouse or a factory or or you know anywhere where there's there's physical risk they have first aiders but they also have you know banisters on the stairs and guards on the machines and processes in place that will stop people getting hurt and mm. then if there is an accident there's a first aider to deal with it and then processes in order to make sure that person is okay and to make sure it doesn't happen again and yeah. n- none of those none of that systemic or proactive work is is commonplace, uh, particularly you know, in, in knowledge work organisations in particular. 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of everything. As you say, yeah, I, th I think the, the the physical analogy is a good one. So it's like you know, if you have a paper cut, then a a plaster out of the first aid box would be sufficient. Hmm. And he's like, yeah, you you know, you kind of go and carry on. But if in fact your injury is far more significant, so you fall down the stairs and it's blatant that you've you know, I kind of let's say broken your leg, the first aid box is not going to do you any good mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it, it, it you know and i guess in america they call them first responders they're the first people on the scene but you wouldn't expect a first responder in this case a paramedic to reset your leg you'd get sent to hospital mm -hmm. like you'd be sent to go and have access to the appropriate specialist care and i think you know it's got to be the same in terms of mental health that it's great to have your your kind of mental health first aid is on the ground to be able to kind of spot and you know yes okay they can touch with a you know a, a kind of equivalent of a paper cut but anything more than that the resource have got to be in place that you can refer them on to mm -hmm. the, the more kind of in-depth specialist help and as i've got a couple of friends that are mental health first aiders and again one of their frustrations is that again they can be treated to, again they're, they're kind of the new tick box you know last year mm -hmm. was all kind of resilience trained this year seems to be oh, everyone's got mental health first aiders but there's not sufficient support given to the mental health first aiders mm -hmm. like who looks after their mental health but secondly of, often there isn't enough of them you know if you mm -hmm. think again about physical health there is a recommendation for how many first aiders you would have per number of employees on a particular site yeah. and, and surely it would make sense to apply the same principle in terms of mental health first aiders but right now that that's not in place you know there's, there's a kind of a, a guidance a recommendation but it's not you know I'm not, I'm not sure it's taken up that well and then there's the whole consideration of well who becomes trained up to be mental health first aiders in the first place like who decides who they should be are they mm -hmm. the right people are they the kind of people that the, the staff would naturally want to go and talk to that we confide in you know because if you train sort of train someone up that nobody likes as a mental health first aider no offense that's a waste of money and also <laughs> so there's there's a sense on, that sorry. so that, that also just thinking of that one of the and, and this i think this happens with with well-being and mental health a lot often the people who are drawn to help in those situations are people who have, have had their own experiences mm. and and so you can under and those people are always or usually very passionate about the subject and will and will give it a lot of attention and will give it do it to the best of their ability but aren't necessarily without the but without the right support aren't necessarily in a place themselves in order to be able to be put in that situation where they may be exposed to other people's poor mental health and be required to support them because then you've got to think about what is the resilience of the or the mental toughness or the support systems for the mental health first aiders mm. and actually are they is their starting point secure enough to be able to to be able to help and i know that yeah yeah, yeah i think there's always a risk you know if i said often the people that you know uh, get drawn into being you know sometimes being a kind of a therapist or a psychologist often people get attracted or interested in that subject because they themselves have experienced some kind of trauma mm. and they, they want to help other people but there's always a risk as to whether or not they have especially let go of that mm -hmm. trauma so they have a degree of empathy which can be incredibly powerful but for me i, I i'm always concerned that if somebody hasn't fully resolved that trauma mm -hmm. there's a risk that they could then project that on the person that they are trying to help and often it wouldn't be intentional but it would be 
accidental. And I was, I was sharing with someone the other day that when I was a student, I mean, this is always kind of pre, pre you know, this is way pre-mental health first aiding, that I was part of an initiative uh, and that was a student listening service. And mm-hmm. we kind of talked about it being kind of like Samaritans for, for students. But it was very clear that we did not have the training to give advice. Mm-hmm. So we were, very, you know, we, we were a listening service. That was it. <laughs> we could refer and we could listen, but we were not there to give advice. And considering that we're students, it was a two and a half day process mm-hmm. of being trained and assessed before we were let loose. And, and you could go through those two and a half days and then come back and go, really sorry, we don't think you're ready. Mm-hmm. And then when we were on duty, we always had a partner. Mm-hmm. So there was always that. So as as a group, as a whole group as Nightline, we were, we were very tight. You know, there's, there was a lot of like social bonding, which may not or not include an alcohol. But there was, there was, there was a lot of work that went into creating that that, that bond as, mm-hmm. a, as a whole group. But then also those there's on duty pairing so that if you did have a difficult mm-hmm. and you could be dealing you could be dealing with exam stress you could be dealing with radiation very well similarly you could be dealing with some you know contemplating suicide so you 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 know you also were always partner with someone so that if you did have a difficult call you immediately had that support person mm-hmm. there to help you process and deal with whatever impact that had on you mm-hmm. as well as then that the kind of the wider community and, and, you know, I look at the mental health, health first editor now thinking, crikey, again, we were doing that 20 years ago mm-hmm. as students. And I said it was a two and a half day process to be even considered mm-hmm. to be active on duty. And I do wonder again, sometimes, you know, I know, I know there's kind of like a two day training for people to do the mental health first aid training. Mm-hmm. But what what has gone in to deciding whether or not that is the right person mm-hmm. to actually do that role? And if they did that training. Is, is the trainer in a position to go back to the business after and go, look, I've had the personal training, but I don't think they are suitable. There's mm-hmm. got to be that, that opportunity to have that, that, that sense check of going, just because I've had the training doesn't necessarily mean that they should be doing this. And also, there's, I, I think the standard for the support and mentoring around of those people in the business, there's no, there is no standard. For, for that as far as yeah. I know and there's I know that different organizations approach it very differently and it mm-hmm. feels like there needs to be more more best practice around the implementation of it because it's such yeah. a good training program it's such a good training program and the the people who deliver it are incredibly passionate and the people who do it are there because they really want to make a difference and actually I, I sort of feel like if they're not, if the businesses then aren't providing the necessary support to to enable them to be effective, and also mm-hmm. doing all the other things that they need to do in a business in a business in order to yeah. to reduce the number of people effectively, what you you want at the end of the day is those people to actually you you know not be having to use that training. Ideally, you know you want to have yeah. sort you know and 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 genuinely having one of the things that i i think drives the the, the whole the, the approach of a lot of corporate well-being is this idea that your mental health is something you bring with you to work as opposed to it being something which you know is necessary is, is potentially damaged or you know exacerbated by the work itself that doesn't seem to be something that's that's accepted but no that's that's uh, well let's, let's move on because we could talk about this particular mm-hmm. subject for hours but we were yeah. already an hour if you count our preamble so we should probably crack on a little bit so we're into kind of like the recommendation sort of portion of the, the questions now so I'd, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd like to know about what's something that what's a tool that you use every day you couldn't live without what's your what's 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 that look like for you that probably be my journal okay I mean I know the question says what's the le- is that the same question as what, what's the most useful thing I've bought recently no that no that's, that's a different question that's a different yeah. question sorry Okay. Uh, so that would be my, my journal and I spent a long t- 
I'm a bit kind of quite geeky because I could, if I if I'm gonna you know if I'm gonna find something I want to kind of get absolutely the right one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I came across this journal a couple of years ago. It's called Inspire. Now, why I liked it is it encourages you to think about goal setting in lots of different areas, mm-hmm. and it you know gets you to think about goals on a kind of a weekly basis. It's got habit tracking, which you know kind of going to bed on time, eating vegetables. Like mm-hmm. I still need to. <laughs> Keep myself accountable, but it also has like a gratitude bit built in there to kind of okay. reflect as to what went well each day. And and I know I have colleagues that find me hilariously archaic the fact that I, I still have a physical diary. But for me, it's, it's it's a kind of tactile experience. And I do remember mm-hmm. reading research that say if you write a goal down, it's so much more powerful than if you just talk about it. And again, I think if you write it down in person, like if you literally hold a pen, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot more kind of connection to it than just typing it on a on a screen. Mm-hmm. So for me, in terms of like every day, it, it is my journal. I say, I say, kind of gives me that structure in terms of setting goals across the multiple areas. So I kind of have it, having some balance, but also then to kind of prioritize. It's got little boxes you can tick it off, and we you know we mm-hmm. like ticking things off. But then it does also encourage me to think about well, actually how has the day gone? You know what mm-hmm. has gone well, and you know we know from some of the positive psychology stuff that if you you know kind of think of three positive things each day, then it you know literally can help rewire the brain in, in terms of uh, a, a kind of more positive mindset. So, so yeah, that's that's probably the, the the thing on a day-to-day basis that I I, I would want to live without. The the variety of kind of life planner, goal setting, journal diary kind of stationery now is there's there's quite a lot of them, aren't there? There, there was I remember yes. a, a few few years ago seeing so maybe five or six years ago getting something for my wife for for her birthday, which was a or Christmas. Christmas will make more sense because then it would be like for the following year, uh, which was it was called a Trig Life Mapper, and it had okay. a yeah very very similar approach. And then kind of every every month it would have a bit of a review of what you were doing, and every quarter have something similar. And it wasn't the only thing like it, but it was certainly there was it was it was it was in a sort of a very sparse field. But it's mm. they there's a there's a lot of that sort of thing available now, isn't there? That to, to you know, it's caught up. So there's a book that I just remembered. There's a book I read about ten years ago, and I can't remember the author, but it's literally. I think the book was called about get your get your life together. Okay. And and yeah, it it it, it literally talked about I guess being more intentional in your goal settings so mm-hmm. rather than just. It, it's, I think it's often we we focus on one or two superficial areas. Like we want to stop mm-hmm. smoking, we want to lose weight, we want a new job, but we don't put a lot of. <laughs> it often doesn't go much depth beyond that, and we often don't take a more holistic approach. And I guess. I guess it can sound quite fuzzy, but it's, it's thinking about, well, actually, what is the life that you want to have and create it intentionally as opposed to just allowing life to happen to you and you only thinking about a couple of areas and the other ones kind of happen by accident. So I said that was a book that I read, you know, at least 10 years ago that really kind of resonated with me. So I, mm-hmm. I, I, I do like a bit of kind of, you know, I love reading some around personal effectiveness. So so when I found that, that journal a couple of years ago, it was kind of actually, it was almost a physical manifestation of what I was reading about 10 plus years ago. The whole like, like bullet journals, like I don't, you know, I must have never quite got my head around like the different symbols, the needs for different colored pens, mm-hmm. but you know, whatever. I mean, I think ultimately what, whatever works, like whatever, you know, you've got to find your own, your own system. I think the only thing my journal doesn't do, which I know is kind of particularly powerful is this certain other journals that I've come across where encourages you to to write down your your top goals every single day right so it just maintains your focus so my my journal doesn't have space for that and I did have a look at their journal but they tried to then cram so much onto one page <laughs> that then 
you know, you, you'd have to have handwriting the size of a gnat to, to actually meaningfully then use it mm -hmm. to, to plan your day. So, so yeah, I, I, I think there's still scope to have the ultimate journal. I've, I've been on a on a hunt. So it, I think my Inspire Now journal is, 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 is close because I say it gets mm -hmm. me to set goals and plan my, my, my day. Sorry, I, I apologize to, for the listeners if this is really not interesting. But oh, oh, I think you, are, you're peak, you are peak. Do yourself a favor right now. This is this is this is fine. So but yeah, um, I, I like a good journal. I, so, I like planning. And and how do we feel about pens? Are you are you fussy about your pens, or are you kind of whatever? Um, actually, as I'm left-handed, hmm. I have to use pencils. Pens okay. are not my friends because most pens are designed for the ink to flow in a particular way, hmm. which if you're left-handed, doesn't work. And also, it's not so much the case now, but I had for many years when I was working and consultant, what you would do on a day-to-day -day basis could change quite significantly. You know, one minute you think, oh yeah, I'm going running that three-day training course. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing you get a phone call and say, scrap that, we need you on this instead. Okay. So you never wrote anything in pen because right. you never knew that it would genuinely come off. Mm. So so now I'm, I'm a pencil girl. Okay. Um, any, any particular kind of pencil? What am I using at the moment? It's a, a, a paper mate that has, it kind of twiddles. So okay. I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to sharpen. Uh, excellent. So you're, a, you're a mechanical, mechanical pencil person. It's, it's, it's a twiddle with, with a rubber on the end. Uh, there's the w one thing that I used to find like kind of probably sadistically amusing was always um, in my previous life watching lefties try to write a whiteboard because oh hideous because it's just like it just gets rubbed out as you go along. Really like, yeah, yeah. As a pen, pens, whiteboards, checkbooks, tin openers. Yeah, not not my friend. I, I remember kind of painfully spending about 10 minutes trying to open a can of beans. Like I just could not get this tin opener to work. Finally got it open. And then when I went to rinse it, I put it in the bin, I realized that actually it was a ring pull and I'd been trying to oh, no. <laughs> open it upside down. Oh, that's classic. No, <laughs> I like it. So let's, let's, let's follow this thread through. So what's the, what's the last really cool thing that you got that you're really proud of that you're like, that's my new shiny? What's... That's oh, my new shiny. This, I, I'm probably going to quite cover up two or three years behind the curve, but I, I actually finally recently started listening to audiobooks. And okay. what I find is, it, I, I love that you probably get the sense from like when I talk about my journal. I am, um, I'm, I'm kind of quite a tactile person. So I, I love the experience of holding a book. Particularly it was a workbook that I, you know, I want my post-it notes. I want to be able to kind of underline bits. But there's certain books where it's just kind of quite good to, you know, for the more entertainment. So I've actually finally started with an Audible subscription and I can now walk and listen. Okay. Uh, so that's, I guess, my way of building a little bit more kind of personal development mm -hmm. time. Because yeah, like I say, I, I generally find like, you know, I, I, my, my mum, she, she she loves to listen to podcasts while she's cleaning the kitchen. I can't mm -hmm. do it because I, I, I want to become fully immersed. If I'm learning something, I want to be in the moment. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't multitask okay. and do another task, but mm -hmm. I can walk. So, so it's not very exciting. It's not very sexy. It's not very techy, but I have recently kind of fully embraced the experience of audiobooks whilst walking. And that's, that's kind of been working quite well for me. And how do you approach the, because uh, I, I don't know, I imagine you as a bit of a, are you a scribbler? Are you a, when you're in, are you a kind of note taker scribbler when you're reading or do you just kind of? I think generally, unless you kind of work books, I'm, I'm kind of quite respectful of my books. Okay. Like I, like I'm not somebody that would kind of bend the spine back. Like by the time okay. I finished a book, it would look almost immaculate as when I first opened it. So as it tends to be kind of pencil underline and post-it notes, I would never write on the book. Okay. So how do you do um, how do you, how do you do that sort of retention stuff from audiobooks? Because this is the one thing, is the one thing that I know a lot of people, myself included, who are die-hard 
dead tree mm-hmm. books sight as being a challenge yeah. with with audiobooks is mm-hmm. that kind of is, is that how are you approaching that by listening to the book several times because also what i find is that you know like with it with any good book is if you're reading something and it kind of triggers a, an interesting thought you know, if you're reading a physical book then you, you just stop reading and, and mm-hmm. kind of follow that thought through with an audio book that's a bit more tricky yeah so so yeah I, i've got kind of you know kind of a couple of books that i'm uh reading and yeah I, i'll just if i realize that i've gone off on a tangent then i'll just rewind and re-listen to that bit mm-hmm. uh again or it might be then what going actually yeah you know because the, the books i'm reading are more kind of like mindset stuff as opposed to kind of technical content okay so it's more what is my personal thought as opposed to content that i would use for my my work okay so it's, it's almost, almost kind of like having a, having a coach, like just mm-hmm. kind of in, in, in my head <laughs> or at least in my ears while I'm talking. So, yeah, so I, I just I will listen to it several times over. And there was somebody this is more kind of an entrepreneur context and, you know, saying that people have a terrible habit of just consuming multiple business books over and over and over mm-hmm. without actually then taking the lessons from them. And, you know, their advice was just, oh, I'll pick a couple of books. And just read them over and over again. Mm-hmm. Like, make sure you fully absorb the, the the lessons. And they talk about, you know, kind of novelty for entertainment, repetition for results. Mm. You know, so just pick a couple of books that really, you know, have the messages that you need to hear. And either read, you know, read them several times over or listen to them several times mm-hmm. over. So that's, that's, you know, for me, that's how I'm doing it. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a bit where I think, actually, I need to hear that again. Then mm-hmm. I just go back to that, that chapter. So it's, 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 it's still a relatively new thing for me. Because I said, you know, I've, I've had lots of people around me that love audiobooks, that love mm-hmm. podcasts, and I've never been able to get on with them. And I've suddenly discovered how to consume that kind of content in a way which works for me. So that's why it's my, that would be my new shiny at the moment, which I know is probably about five years behind everyone else. It's well. I mean, you know, I've I've not got there. I could do I could do podcasts, but but yeah, audiobooks I've still not managed to, to click with. Um, are you are you a fiction reader? How does that? I am. So business books or books for learning mm-hmm. uh, are always always the physical book because mm-hmm. I, I want my post-it notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, fiction is on my Kindle, so okay. uh, I. I I was initially a bit wary about Kindles because, like I say, again, I do like the tactile experience of holding a book. But for me, I am a ridiculously fast reader, particularly if it's um, fiction. So mm-hmm. on holiday, I would average a good three to four hundred word book a day. Right. Wow. So if I was if I was going on a week's holiday, I'd need at least seven books. Mm. I have been on holidays where I've had to restart reading the first book before the end of the holiday because I've run out of books. Mm-hmm. So my Kindle now has hundreds of books on it. Mm-hmm. And it fits in my handbag. It's an amazing. And and yeah, you know, I, I definitely like my my Kindle limited subscription. And, and similar to, I, I guess, an, an initial chat about '90s movies and the, you know, for me, just being entertainment. That's what fiction books are. You know, right. they, they they are pure entertainment. You know, for kind of switching off, taking my brain somewhere mm-hmm. else. So um, so yeah, fiction books on Kindle, business books on um, or, or kind of workbooks are on kind of on a on a, a kind of a, a a slightly overwhelmed bookshelf. Aren't they, aren't they all? No, I, I, yeah, I, I, I feel you about the Kindle. That's something that I found is that what I've always, what I tended to use my Kindle for is yeah, books for holiday. Mm-hmm. So not having to you take up half my luggage allowance with with books, yeah, but or, or really thick books. So I I remember reading Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, mm-hmm. which is a chunky old book, and tried to do yeah. that on commutes, and it mm-hmm. just it was heavier than my laptop. And just it was so, and it just it wasn't so. It, it, I put and then I put it on my Kindle. Just like ah, oh, it, actually it fits in my pocket, you know. And then I could just carry it. So for that point of yeah. view, I just and yeah. So just like 
big thick books that I'd been putting off reading because just they were in some cases too heavy to hold mm-hmm. then suddenly became a lot more accessible for, through through something like mm-hmm. Kindle. Also books with embarrassing covers. I'm pushy. I don't think I've been buying enough of those. <laughs> I think Fifty Shades of Grey that was kind of that, that was probably kind of uh, probably a popular one when um, Kindles became available so then you could kind of read that without publicly declaring it. That, um, that's right yeah I can I, I, I can imagine the, uh, the yeah there was there was a book I, I read fairly recently that was recommended by a friend of mine called um, Existential Kink which is a kind of uh, shadow sort of Jungian shadow self type approach to kind of dealing with destruct sort of self-sabotaging behavior that I, I was recommended and it was it was really interesting there was some it was a bit it was a bit witchy in places that I didn't I didn't really get on with that but the front cover did basically look like a bad erotic novel and so so I elected to get that on Kindle rather than because because I just yeah I, I mean I wasn't commuting at the time but I just yeah I, I just couldn't put up with the comments from my wife I don't think so it was yeah right let's let's wrap it up with the last question then Maria let's and I'd like you to to complete the sentence do yourself a favour and oh crikey switch off this bank holiday and close the laptop go and live like ex- experience life switch off from work for a few days it'll be there when you come back on Tuesday mm, lovely that's 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 nice what are you doing on the bank holiday I have family visiting. I think we might check out something at Arundel Castle and there's some kind of children. I mean, most of it's kind of child themed. And then I think that there's something about kind of toddlers making music, which will probably be absolutely hideous. I think that's on Bank Holiday Monday. I um, I made the mistake of giving my three-year-old a harmonica. That was, I don't know why I did that. I, I found an old <laughs> harmonica and he was like, what's that daddy? And I was like, oh, do you want it? And yeah, that's, that's yeah, never again. Don't give a three-year-old a harmonica. That, that's my do yourself a favour and for, for this week. Maria, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I've, 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 I've had a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it. Where can people find you? I guess these days it's on the internet, isn't it? So mm. I, I, I kind of fairly regular on LinkedIn. But if you wanted to check out my website, then it's psychologyworks.global. Excellent. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us on Do Yourself a Favour. And we'll meet you again soon. Goodbye. Thank you, Tim. You've been listening to Do Yourself a Favour, the podcast about learning from experience and the things we do to make our lives easier. Brought to you by Make Work Work Better. My name's Tim Sisney from Make Work Work Better. Our theme tune is by The Titanics. Talk to you again soon.